welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. talking a lot about the building lately because we've been giving to it and praying for it and we're looking forward to using it. You can have a look after the service just through those doors. You'll see the, the new raised uh, ceiling. It's going to be great. But let's face it, buildings are only a means to an end. The end is, of course, people connecting with God and, uh, and that's why we call it a facility because it's to facilitate something and we want to facilitate encounters a, a, a meaningful connection uh, where we we see uh, salvation and healing and blessing and breakthrough and, uh, and instruction and leading and devotion and relationship and all these awesome things that happen when we're in the presence of God. And I want to talk about that this morning, just encountering God and what that looks like in our lives. I want to read two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The first one is from the prophet Jeremiah. Excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, he prophesied 600 or so years before Jesus came. And uh, he's, as a prophet, uh, is someone speaking a word to people on behalf of God about what's going to happen in the future. And he said this, Jeremiah 30, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's the Mosaic covenant. And uh, he then goes on and says, no, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And watch this. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Did you notice that? They shall all know me. That's God's heart. That's God's promise. That's his will for each one of us. And so Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy. In fact, Jesus even refers to that prophecy uh, at the Last Supper when he institutes what we call communion and he hands around the bread and the wine and says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is my new covenant. And then, of course, he goes on and by his death and his sacrifice and his blood being shed, he confirms the covenant and makes it available, possible for everyone to have direct access to God, to have his law, his instructions, his life in our own heart, personally, individually. And so now there's no need for a priest like they have in the Old Testament or special offerings or uh, ceremonies or sacrifices. Every individual, individual can now encounter God, worship God personally, Get to know God. Isn't that amazing? And, uh, and one person who sets a great example of what that looked like is the Apostle Paul. So I want to read a passage that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And he's describing his experience of encountering God through Jesus and knowing him personally in Philippians chapter 3. And, uh, you know, in this passage, you may know it when I'm about to read it, just the, the background, he's talking about his accomplishments um, and the status that he had had as a Pharisee, kind of like someone today would have as a QC, you know, top barrister, Queen's Council, or a judge, someone in our society, highly respected, uh, quite a lot of kudos. And then he says in response to those uh, accomplishments, that position that he has, in Philippians 3, verse 7, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. That's what Byron was talking about over communion. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ. Verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, Paul the Apostle. I want to know Christ. And I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. There's a statement that a lot of people don't want to really linger on. <laughs> Sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things. Notice the word achieve. Or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to, to the end, to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling me. Did you hear that? I want to know Christ. That's his passion. In fact, the Passion Version puts it this way. I continually long to know the wonders of Jesus more fully. So he makes it quite clear that the very best thing in his life is no longer the position that he had, the power that he wielded because of that position, the popularity that he had in society, the prosperity, uh, or any other P's, uh, but another P, the person of Jesus. The presence of God. And he says, that's, that's number one. That's, all, that's what it's all about. And having encountered Jesus, the achievements that Paul now prioritises has nothing to do with worldly values, with what society would call successful, with what others might consider our great achievements. He says, no, no, my achievement is just to know Jesus. <laughs> that's, his, that's his goal. That's his vision. That's his mission statement. And, you know, we can and should all have the same priorities and have the same ongoing, deep, rich, wonderful, life-changing encounters that he had with God personally. And uh, I just want us to let that sit on us and settle on us and, and respond to that because God never wanted to be a distant figure, a, a, an impersonal spiritual force somewhere out there, just a, a provider of rules and instructions to, to do life or, or worse than that, a, a kind of an old 
mean, disgruntled kind of spiritual figure. And the image that some people have had of God maybe is like that. He Look, since the Garden of Eden, God's wanted to meet with people, to be with people. You know, and, and in doing so, he wants our lives to be radically changed and improved. And you see that right throughout the Bible. You've got uh, Abraham, he's old, his wife is barren, and then he encounters God in a vision. Look at the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have, and everything changes. Moses, uh, you know, decades in the desert, in the backside of the desert, as the preachers say sometimes, I love that phrase, in the posterior, the bottom of the desert. I, anyway, he's in the desert. I always think that's funny, but excuse me. Um, but there he is for years and years and years, and then he encounters God through a burning bush, and the next thing, he's a leader taking millions of people out of slavery into freedom. And then his successor, Joshua, he encounters well, he encounters Jesus, a pre-incarnate encounter of Christ, a Christophany, as the theologians call it. And he asks, which side are you on? <laughs> and then realises that's probably the wrong question. <laughs> and sort of retreats and works it out and reprioritizes and goes, okay, I get it, you're the boss. And then he just, as a result of that encounter, goes and takes the promised land. And David... You know, he's writing songs and poems and encounters God that way and has a heart after God and ends up being the king of Israel. And you go through, and it's it's not just the famous, they're, they're, they're the kind of most historically famous results of those encounters. But you can see lives that are transformed in their own way, in an individual way, just by their personal encounter with God, having their sins forgiven, having guilt and shame washed away, having the power of God come and and heal physically and emotionally and all kinds of pain in their life, discovering hope in terrible situations, and most of all, discovering God himself for themselves. And it's not just in the Bible. You look at history, you see people who are changed because they've encountered God. I read recently about Blaise Pascal. Remember that name from high school maths? He was... He did something. I can't remember the details, but, you know, Pascal's equation, Pascal's triangle, I don't know, he did something that was lost in the fog of three-unit maths when I'm gazing out the window many years ago. But God bless him, he was a famous French mathematician and an inventor, philosopher from the 1600s, but he was also a Christian. When he died, his servant was going through his stuff and he found his overcoat that he wore all the time and he found... Inside the inner lining of the overcoat, a little piece of paper that Pascal had sewn in years before. And on the paper was this description of an experience that he had had many years earlier. And it read, in the year 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past ten in the evening until half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham. God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers, not of the scholars. Certainty, certainty, feeling, joy, peace. I will not forget thy word. Amen. He had made a point to carry with him for the rest of his life a record and a reminder of that encounter that he had with God. 
And I love the fact that he says this encounter is not the God of the philosophers that he had met. Because in his culture, with the church at that time, and uh, with the, the Enlightenment, uh, you know, it would be very easy just to consider God that philosophical concept. But he's saying, no, no, I'm talking about the God who relates to people, who is in relationship with people, who, who he refers to, Abraham and others who knew and you know, personally encountered God. I think that's pretty cool. D.L. Moody, he had a similar experience, the great evangelist uh, from you know, America, preached in the, in the 1800s, and he wrote this, One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. And he's not talking about a Broadway show that he saw. He, he says, I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience, experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Come on. Hey. Thing is, the Bible tells me that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So that means what he's done in the past, he's going to do in the future, and he's going to do it today as well. And that means he'll do it for you and for me, just as much as anyone. And of course, you know, sometimes it can be spectacular, an encounter with God, but sometimes it's just the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. It can be a whisper. It can still be supernatural and spiritual without having to be spectacular. And sometimes it's all by yourself. Many often, many times, we need to have times when we're all by ourselves with God, alone with the Lord. But sometimes it's with other people. And it's important for us to have experience of God, not just alone, but in a community of believers, because it helps us decode spiritual messages and impulses that we can receive that we need to bounce off with other people. Too many people have made some crazy decisions on the basis of one apparent word from God that may not have been the Lord, but was just a thought that was out there in the spiritual world. And we can avoid some of the pitfalls of being isolated when we're in a good community. And I, um, uh, you know, Leo, Leo Tolstoy, uh, uh, I think, uh, exemplifies this um, in, a, in a sad way. Uh, you've heard of Tolstoy. I, can I just say I finally finished reading War and Peace yeah. on the third attempt. Thank you, Michael. You'll, you probably read it over breakfast one morning, you know, but uh, I tried, you know, when we went to Russia in the early 90s, I thought, well, I've got to read Tolstoy, War and Peace, the greatest novel ever written. Oh, man, it's hard going and I didn't finish it. And then years later, I thought, all right, I better try again. And I don't know what happened then either. But, but last year in about September, I thought I'm going again, and I finally finished some months later because it's over half a million words. Like most novels are about a hundred thousand. Tolstoy was just an animal. I mean, the Russians, you know, they there's a lot of snow, there's a lot of time inside, there's a lot of time where they just can't go out and kick a soccer ball. And so they're in, they're writing, they're talking, they're reading, they're writing, playing music, you know. So, anyway, look, he had an incredible understanding of history, of war. Uh, of humanity, of relationships, but he was also a real believer and uh, his Christian beliefs come through in the book. He was brought up as a Russian, a Russian um, aristocrat and, 
and amidst the religiosity of the church of the time, he wrestled to find a genuine way of living the Christian faith. And as he got older, he really pressed in. He tried to, to, to live a life that was consistent with the teachings of Jesus, in, in particular the Sermon on the Mount. He got right into that. And, uh, and yet, on one hand, while he was seeking God, at the same time, he was quite isolated and he developed some pretty wacky ideas and he had no community, had no good counsel around him. And so finally, he determined to give up his vast estates, give up his wealth, give up his aristocratic lifestyle, and he was going to literally lose his life to find God. And a few days later, he wandered out into the cold, got pneumonia, and died at a railway station, miles from home, miles from family, and, and it was a tragic and lonely end to his life. Had this great intellect, great ideas, but he was lacking the support of a strong, local, sensible church that could help him navigate what being godly meant in the world, rather than just being left to his own devices. So it's good to have the right people around you, you know, to be planted in a local church. And, uh, and yet, of course, it's still up to each of us to seek God, to find him. And, of course, when we do, we get this amazing relationship because, mm-hmm. you know, relationships are great, but even the best people will let you down occasionally, very occasionally, I'd say, towards this area where my wife's seated, you know, because you know, as, uh, you know, no matter how great your marriage is, God's the only one who's going to be perfectly consistent, gracious, loving, available, wise, supportive, etc., etc. Yeah? And so we, we, we rely on him, not on other people. And there's so many benefits flowing from the relationship we develop with God. You know, you can make great decisions as he touches and anoints your, your mind. You get uh, your thought life shifted and benefiting because it... Your attitudes, it's very hard to have a bad attitude when you're in the presence of God. You know, very hard to stay angry at that person or upset about this or fearful about that or worried about this because you bring it all, you cast your cares on him and the peace of God comes and passes all understanding, guarding your heart. Wow. And he just cleans out those bad attitudes and that fear and that worry or whatever it is and he replaces it with grace and love and confidence, yeah? And so you come out of your prayer closet, the world hasn't changed, but everything seems different. Right? The situation's the same, but your perspective has improved. You've got a, a God's you know, eye view of it from up there. And it's like, oh, look at that. It's just a little problem. You know? And your job doesn't suck after all. Or your husband's not such an idiot. Or your you know, drama that you're facing is like, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, and, and you get a sense when you're in the presence of God, you don't have to figure it all out. You don't, you don't have to fight on your own because God's going to lead you and bring you to a place of victory. And, the, you know, you just have to trust him. You just have to hang on to him. Um, you know, many years ago, back in Oxford Falls, and no, not the church, not the mothership, but years before... Uh, in the now overgrown quarry that is around the corner from Oxford Falls. You can go there and see this this great big massive bush, but it used to be packed full of motorbikes on the weekend. Big quarry and this um, sort of motocross track around the outside. And we would ride there, little kids, and my father was 
one of those guys riding around, and they asked a few of the better riders to be part of a TV ad that they were going to film. And the idea of the ad, they had an actor, and then they just they got local good dirt bike riders, and I think their pay was some motorbike shirts, you know, with Yamaha or whatever written on them. And they were happy to do that. Sure, just come on this day, certain time. And the idea was that the hero, the actor, would um, race a, a race and they'd film him burning the guys off down the main straight, win the race, and then light a fag and get the girl because it was a cigarette ad. It shows you how long ago it was. You know? and, um, they, and so they all rocked up and we were there, little kids watching, I remember. And the guys that could ride, they had, they, they wanted, as I said, good riders. My dad was one of them. They, so they race around and, you know, wheelie and jump and slide and, and they're waiting for this actor to, you know, ride past them. And he couldn't get past them because he was no good at riding a dirt bike. And so they slowed down and slowed down to try and let him get past. And back in those days, the two-stroke European motorbikes, Simon, Ruben, some of you guys will know, they just foul up the spark plugs. You can't just keep riding them. And so they end up, there's smoke everywhere. They're going as slow as they can. They're not wheeling and sliding. They're sort of going slowly around. They're like, this is not going to work, you know. And they all come into the pits and, you know. And the director of the TV ad said, all right, this is what we can do. So they get the actor, they put him on his motorbike and put him in the back of a ute. And they got the camera at the front of the ute filming him. And I'll never forget this scene where you sell these motorbikes and they're still going slow enough for this ute to drive down the middle of the motocross track, down the straight. They're filming and the bike sort of looks like it's overtaking them and then he gets off the bike and I remember just having no respect for this guy because so you can't ride a bike. And there he is with the chick, they're filming him with a cigarette and he's good looking, had a moustache, you know. And I just thought, yeah, really. But uh, and, well, I never saw the ad, but apparently it, it, it filmed in cinemas somewhere. Um, now, I tell that story uh, to tell another story. And I'm sorry if that story wasn't good enough for you, but I enjoyed the moment of just remembering it. But the story I really want to tell is similar to that, but on a slightly bigger stage. You know how they say as big as Ben-Hur? So this story is about Ben-Hur. The movie Ben-Hur, as you may know, was like this blockbuster. 1960, it won 11 of the 12 possible Academy Awards. And uh, if you've never seen it, it's a great film. goes for hours and hours. We know it quite well because when we were in Russia, for a couple of years, we didn't have a lot of entertainment. Russian TV consisted of, get this, Spanish soap operas dubbed by one Russian male voice. I kid you not, and I've probably told this before. So you've got one deep male Russian voice reading a script that someone's translated into Russian, so we can hardly understand it anyway. And he's like... Natasha, I love you. No, Boris, I must leave you. Please come back. No, I said, there's one monotone voice. And then, and then and the scene was all these Spanish people, you know, being dramatic and continental and, you know, going off. Like, and this one monotone, was, it was funny for about 10 minutes, then it was boring. So we had movies, very few. We took with us videos, as they were, two movies, two of the greatest movies of all time, Chariots of Fire and The Blues Brothers. And so... Uh, we watched them over and over again. And the pastor uh, from the church over in St. Petersburg, he came back from America and he had a film for us. He said, oh, watch this, Ben-Hur. Great. And we'd probably seen it once as kids, but it, you know, it goes for several hours. So we remember watching it in chapters over and over and over. And we enjoyed that. And then that was over. Probably did it again. you know. And then we got a, a, um, a fax from our pastors. And Christine Pringle said, I'm going to send you a movie. 
and we had to go to Finland. We only got to go there every few months, do our mail, our banking, drove our little Russian car over the border, and we went there, and there's this parcel, and the movie that Christine sent was Ben-Hur. Thank you, Lord. You know, we felt God was sort of having a go at us, saying, don't rely on entertainment. And I'm going to teach you that lesson by giving you Ben-Hur uh, again. Anyway, Charlton Heston was the star of Ben-Hur, young man at the time, um, and his role uh, involved, for the climactic scene, winning a chariot race. And this is long before green screens and CGI and technology with all that. He had to literally ride a chariot with lots of horses in front. And he had the same issue as the actor, punk, hopeless dirt bike rider back at Oxford Falls years later. He couldn't ride the chariot fast enough. And he went to the director and said, I'm sorry, um, Mr. Wyler, I think Wyler was the, you know, the famous director of the day. He said, I'm sorry, I can barely stay on the chariot. I can't win this race. And the director, William Wyler, famously looked at Charlton Heston and said, son, your job is just to stay on the chariot. My job is to make sure you win. And he did just that with all the film angles, even back then. And, you know, he just had to hang on and somehow they can get the angles right and let him win the race. And I thought that is a great analogy. God's our director. All you've got to do is hang on. Sometimes, you know, like Jesus said, keep your hands on the plough. It's the same thing. Sometimes just hang on to the Lord. Just hang on to that chariot and stay close to him, press into his presence, and he will ensure that you win the race. And Paul says in that passage that we read before, he says, I'm running to the end of the race. And he says, I press on. Some translations talk about, use the word perseverance. And so this is not just a flippant, occasional tingle, oh, the Lord, the presence, oh, that was nice, you know. And then, oh, my life's falling apart, where's God? I'll forget it. There is some level of, discipline and passion and intensity if you like not that we're wound up we're just freaked you know but but there's just a consistent commitment to the lord to run the race to the end you've heard it said before the christian race is not a sprint it's a marathon and and let me tell you a marathon is not easy you know I, i've run one and the legs scream at you towards the end saying what are we doing can you please stop the what time out? What everyone, you know, and your will has to just say, shut up, legs, keep shuffling, keep going, keep going. Sometimes your spirit needs to be stronger than your mind freaking out, your heart worrying, and just say, hang on to the Lord, hang on to the chariot, just stay in the game, stay on track, stay running the race, yeah. And so whenever you feel that pressure. That comes in life, whether it's a, a job interview or a business meeting or the pressure of raising kids or, or any situation where you feel out of your depth, all we've got to do is stay on the chariot. Just take a grip and, and grip onto God and, and, and let him, he's the great director, he's going to take charge and get it all right and, uh, and, and get you through. Yeah? And so... Uh, just one last scripture that comes to mind. You know, the, in, in the book of Acts chapter 4, I think it is, uh, I think Peter has just preached and said, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except Christ. And, um, and then it says, they took note that these guys were uneducated. And then they said, but they also notice 
that they had been with Jesus. The fact that they had been with Jesus was the only qualification they needed to be such a great witness, to fulfil the call of God on their lives. And I believe it's the same for us. You know, it's not university degrees or good looks or popularity or connections or money or anything else. It's just a heart connecting with God. And when you walk out of that prayer closet, you walk out of those moments of prayer and praise in church, community, individually, whatever, whenever and whenever it is. And as Paul says, pray without ceasing. There should be constant moments where we're in God's presence. You come out of that into the world, things are all going to fall into place. Yeah, Come on, let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.